Today we're going to be looking at an amazing story to kind of set the stage for you. I already told you that Joshua um, followed Moses. So Moses was the leader of the children of Israel while they were in Egypt. We, of course, know about the Ten Commandments, and we know about, you know, let my people go, and we know about when they went out of the wilderness, and they were backed up against the, the, the Red Sea, and how God opened up the Red Sea, and, and they were able to go across, and the, the, the armies of, of Egypt tried to follow them through to destroy them, and God closed the water of the Red Sea up on them, and they all died. And we noticed that because of their disobedience, which just always blows my mind until I look around today and see how disobedient we are, that their disobedience, after seeing what God had done, caused God to punish them to the point that they were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years, an area that shouldn't have taken that much time to traverse. Uh, they ended up being out there for 40 years. But even when they were in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided for them. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. He provided food for them. He provided manna from heaven. And when they complained about all the manna they were getting, he sent quail that they were able to just reach out and knock down out of the air. And they were having a, a, a chicken fry by the end of the day. And so we see that God provided for them throughout their entire time. Moses did some things that we don't have time to get into right now. A lot of people attribute it to the person that he murdered, but it wasn't the murder that, that took place. It was actually, um, there was a, a picture that God was trying to paint for the people of, of a rock where water flowed from. And this water was supposed to flow from this rock, and it was a picture of Jesus Christ. And he told Moses, only strike the rock once. Moses struck the rock twice. He blasphemed the word of God by doing that. And God punished him and said, when we get, when we get to the promised land, I'm going to let you see it. But I'm not going to let you step foot in it. And so Moses died on one side of the Jordan, and, and Joshua took over and took the reins, and he became the leader to carry them across the River Jordan. And so now we see in Joshua chapter 5 where some of this is, this is all taking place. They're, they're in the promised land, but the problem is now that, that Satan has a grip on that promised land. And there are many groups of people, there are many uh, kingdoms, and there's many um, uh, armies that are there that are opposed to them getting it. God's told them, this is your land, go take it. And now they're going, and they're, they're going in to take it. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, we see where now they're, they're facing an obstacle they haven't faced before. They're facing a town called Jericho that is very well defended. And not only are they very well defended, but it also has all of the, uh, everything they need to survive. Back in this time, what would happen is if, a, if a, an, an army was coming in to destroy you, what you do is you just close up the gates. Close up the gates. You had a big wall around the town. You'd close up the gates. And if you'd planned properly, you had a water source inside, probably a well or something. And, and not only a water source, but then you'd also have food storage so that you could stay inside where it's nice and warm for months with water and food and animals and not have to go outside. Whereas the armies would come and they'd come pass around you. Well, now they have to hunt for their food. And when you get an army out there, the food is going to get pretty thin pretty quick. They have to search for their water or dig their own wells out there. And it becomes very, very difficult for an army to stay outside. And so that's what places like Jericho would do. They were well, very well fortified. They had their army. And they'd just close up the doors and wait. And this is what's going on. They're coming up to this, this, this town. And Joshua doesn't know what to do. 
And in verse number 13 of John chapter, or Joshua chapter number 5, it says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sworn drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up unto him, went unto him, and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as the captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto, said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from thy foot, for the place whereon thy stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So get the picture. Joshua's outside of Jericho. He's probably trying to come up with a plan because Joshua is known even today in military circles as one of the greatest generals, one of the greatest military minds that ever lived. By the way, you're going to see what his secret was to being a great military mind today. And we're seeing that here. And this, this person, this man, he sees this man over there with a sword. And it's obviously a formidable person. He's like, hey, are you with us or are you against us? Kind of the battle cry of all battles, right? Whose side are you on? And we spoke and told him who he was. Now, there's a lot of debate here as to who this person was. Because he identifies himself as the captain of the Lord host, or the captain of the host of the Lord. But if you notice a couple of things that take place here. One, Joshua falls down to worship him. A lot of people believe this is an angel. But anytime in the Bible you see where an angel is worshipped, you know what the angel always does? He says, stop worshipping me. There's only one worthy of worship. So whoever this person is didn't stop him. That means this person is what? Worthy of worship. He goes a further step and he says, take off your shoes. Why? Because you're on holy ground. People have made the comment that this is holy ground, this church building. I guess in, in, the, in the broader sense that anywhere a Christian is is holy ground because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. But there's nothing different about this stage than there is that chair. Or this stage and the yard outside. It's not holy. It's not sanctified. I'm sanctified. You're sanctified. Hopefully you're sanctified. You're holy. This things in here aren't holy. But where this person was standing... It was holy ground. Again, I believe this is probably a Christophany. You can't prove that. But I believe this is one of those Old Testament appearances of Christ. He's worthy of worship. And so then in verse number 6, we see there's a message here. Verse number 6 says, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. That's what I was saying. The gates are shut. It's all closed up. The armies are out there. So Jericho's like, we'll just wait it out. Chapter 6, verse number 2, and it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given unto thee thine hand, Jericho, and unto thine hand, Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, and ye, ye, may, and ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark of the ark, seven trumpets of a ram's horn, and the seventh day you shall come past the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with trumpets, and it shall come to pass that when they shall make a, a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and, and unto them, and said unto them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on, and compass the city, and let him that is 
arm pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horn passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpet and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priest that blew the trumpet and the reward, rewarder, the reward, re-reward came after the ark. The priest going on blowing with the trumpet. And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I bid you shout. Then shall ye shout. So the, so the ark of the Lord can pass the great city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the, of the Lord. And the pr- seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of, the, of rams, horns, Ram horns went before the ark of the Lord, went on continually, and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the rewarder came after the ark of the Lord, the priest going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they can pass the city once and return to the camp. So did they six days. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and can pass the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they can pass the city seven times. And it came to pass on the seventh time when the priest blew the trumpet, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. And the city shall be accursed, even it, and all that are uh, therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all that are with, are with her in the house, because she hit the messengers that we sent. And ye... And ye, and ye, in any ways, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye, ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the, with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, and ass with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and bring out thence the woman. And all that she hath, and she, and ye, as ye swear unto her. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her father's household, and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day, because she, she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua adjured, adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city, Jericho. He shall lay the foundation therein in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing passage. I know my, my eloquence in reading doesn't always do it the justice, but I, I want you to see some things because I entitled the sermon today, when, when Does God Work? 
And the reason I did that is because I, I hear people talking about that God's not doing anything, God's not moving, that, that things are getting so bad in our, in our country and so bad in our, in our society and so bad in our lives that it seems like God's absent and that God's not working. Now, intellectually, we know that's not true. Intellectually, we know that God's always got his hand in things, that God is always working, that God is always maintaining. But sometimes in our hearts, it can begin to, to kind of feel a little empty. It can start to feel like God's not doing what God said he was going to do. And I've found over the years, I'm not the, the, the sharpest tack in the box, but I've found over the years that when there's a problem between God and me, the problem's on my side. There's usually something that either, either my timing, God's timing isn't right, or I've allowed some sin into my life, or I've, I've decided not to do something I'm supposed to do, and, and I'm not working the way I'm supposed to be working, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. There's something amiss in my world. And I've started to create a barrier between me and God. I've started to put things between us. So I wanted to look at a few things today in this story so we can begin to understand this story a little bit better, but we can also begin to understand how God works in our life a little bit better. Because this is a fascinating story. And I I love these old stories. I love reading these old stories because it's just so incredible. It's so incredulous that that this actually happened. And this is factual. There's archaeological facts to back this up. This happened. And it is just bizarre the way God chose to do this. And I love that. But, but it, it, if I could be a little selfish for just a moment, if it's just a history story, I like history. But history doesn't pay the bills, right? His, history doesn't, doesn't comfort my heart. History doesn't, doesn't patch up my soul. And so I want something when I read the Bible, and I know this sounds a little selfish, and I apologize. Give me that leeway for just a moment. It sounds a little selfish, but, but when I look at these old stories, I have to say, well, God, how, how does that apply to me? Thankfully, truthfully, each one of these stories that we've been talking about, it applies directly to us today. We can take, we can take the principles and the practical natures of these stories, and we can take those and we can put them into our lives today. That's how real this Word of God is. This isn't just some work by Neville or, 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 or Witten or, or, or somebody else. This book, these 66 books that we contain here and we call the Bible, each one was written by God. He used different human authors to put pen to paper. But understand, the author of the entire Bible is God. That's why you read from beginning to end, and it seems like it's one author. Whether he's writing uh, history or science or or poetry or prose, it doesn't matter what it is he's writing. It it has that same feeling that it's one author, even if the wordings change. He uses three different languages, primarily two, but but there's a little bit in the old uh, old Greek in there, the old Conan Greek, a little bit, not much, but most of it is, is, is Hebrew and Greek. And so we, we see those two, that even though we change languages, even though it's written over a thousand years, even though it's written by 66 different pens, if you will, different writers, the author is God. And it writes and reads as one book. First thing we see, this is, a, like I said, this is an incredulous story. So Joshua gets this word. 
Joshua takes the word to the, the priest. The priest takes the word to the people. And the word is really, really simple. This is how we're going to defeat this heavily armored, heavily impenetrable building. This whole town, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get all, we're all going to get together. And we're going to carry the ark. By the way, the ark, we don't have time to get into all that. But it was a, a, a very sacred symbol for the people then. It was the ark of the covenant. And so they've got the ark, they, they put it on, on poles, and they put it on their shoulders, and they're carrying this ark, and they're carrying it around, we're going to walk around the building. We're going to have the priests go, and they're going to blow their horn, and we're going to walk, and other than the horns blowing, we're going to be really quiet. We don't want to wake anybody up inside. That's, that's what we're going to do. You have to think, some of the people are like, we're going to do what? How, how is that going to help us? But you don't see any of that murmuring. At least God doesn't report any murmuring. So if there was any, it, was, it wasn't even important. We don't see the priests murmuring. We don't see the leaders murmuring. They're like, okay. And we're done with it on day one. This is what we're going to do on day two. You ready? We're going to do it again. Say, all right. And by day six, they're like, okay, we, can get, we, we got this down. And now by day seven, he says, okay, today we're going to do it a little different. Today we're going to do it, and we're going to walk around the, the whole entire fence, the whole entire wall. We're going to walk around it seven times, and then they're all like, then we're going to attack, right? Nope. Then we're going to blow the horns, but this time, we're not going to be quiet. We're going to make a lot of noise. I, there's got to be one guy in there saying, what, what do you say? We're not going to attack? No, we're not going to attack until the walls come down. Now, given their history of murmuring, somebody had to be murmuring. But it's not recorded because it wasn't even important. It wasn't even enough to make a blip. People were there, man. People were like, all right. We saw God part the Red Sea. We've seen God provide manna every single day. We've seen God give us quail when we were being disobedient. Knock a wall down? God can knock a wall down. You see, the first thing we see with this is God, God works following our obedience. I'm going to be honest with you. And if you can disagree, disagree. It didn't really make any sense to walk around that building, walk around that, that compound six times. Did it? For what? Did it loosen up the ground so that the building, would, the walls would fall over? No. It made no sense. The only sense that it made is because God said, do it. And so when God says do something, it doesn't matter if it makes rational sense. It doesn't matter if it makes worldly sense. It doesn't even matter if it makes sense to us personally. We don't even have to have an understanding because, to be honest with you, on those six days, those people probably didn't know what was going on. God told Joshua to do this. Joshua told us we're going to do it. Following the obedience. Nothing happened on day one. You see, partial obedience wasn't enough. Partial obedience is just another way of saying disobedience. Partial obedience wasn't enough. Day two wasn't enough. That's still partial. Day three wasn't enough. It took all seven days. You know, if they'd gone out with six horns instead of seven, you know what would have happened? Nothing. Not because it was a magic spell that they were creating. It's because God said, do it this way. 
a lot of pictures and symbolisms that we just don't have time to get into today. But there was a purpose for every single thing God was doing. And they didn't understand the purpose. And we don't have to understand the purpose in order to understand that God said, do it this way. We don't have to agree. We have to be obedient. We have to be obedient. When we're obedient, God works. When we're disobedient, God is under no obligation to do anything for us. You ever have one of those kids that just tried your patience? And you wanted to do something. Maybe you were planning on doing something. Maybe you were planning on going out for ice cream or going to Disney or, or going to the park. You're planning on doing something, but they just they refuse to do the basic things you tell them to do. Go clean your room. Go clean your room when you go to the park. They refuse to clean their room. And they get upset because they can't get to the, go to the park. Does that mean you're mean? No, they weren't obedient. They want you to get in the car and drive them to the park? That's going to follow the obedience. You see, we're little pictures of our Father. And a lot of our attitudes are the same, although not as good, not as crisp. And so when we're disobedient, we don't get rewards here on earth. We should understand that concept. God's the same way. God wanted great things for the children of Israel. He'd already told them, too, this is your land. We're going to the park. But you've got to do this first. Well, I don't want to do this. Well, you know, it's still your land, but you don't get it. You don't get it. Maybe the next generation will get it. God works following our disobedience. Christ gave them very, very specific, um, clear instructions. This is exactly how to do this. And this is exactly what they did. Joshua had to make a choice. Joshua could have changed it. You know, he could have put his own little flair on it. He could have said, hey, let's do it. Instead of, let's, instead of six days, let's do 12. 12 days. That's better, right? 12 is better than six. If six is going to bring the walls down, what's 12 going to do? Let's do 12 days. That's not what God said, right? God said six. Joshua had a choice whether he did that or he did something else. Joshua followed him. And we see the reward. We're still talking about it today. Battle that took place thousands of years ago. And we're still talking about it today because of Joshua's obedience. Next, God works in the mundane. You know, we, we expect, I think sometimes in the Christian life, we expect like balls of fire to fall from heaven all the time. And lightning strikes and, and earth is going to rumble and, and boxes of money are going to pop up out of the ground. And we expect all these things. But to be honest with you, most of the Christian life is very mundane. It's just simple, simple, simple. Christian life's not really that hard. Look at what they did. Six days of monotony. By the way, you know, we talk about walking around the wall, walking around. It's a big place. This is huge. This was quite, quite a walk. And so they're going around there, but still, it's just a walk. And they're going around, they're walking for six days. And what do they do after the, when they're done walking? What does it say they do? They go back to camp. That's it. That was their day. We're going to go on a long walk. Whew. Remember those days in boot camp? They get you up at 4 o'clock in the morning and say, hey, guys, we're going to go for a long nature walk today. And then when we're done with that long nature walk, you got the rest of the day to yourselves. That was pretty much how boot camp was, right? That would have been nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Let's go on a long nature walk. No, a long nature walk meant put your packs on 
we're not walking, we're running, and it's raining, and snowing, and we're going uphill, and you're going to carry somebody else on your back. But anyways, this was just mundane. There wasn't anything exciting. They were probably looking for something. Maybe somebody will shoot an arrow at us today. I know there was at least a couple guys in there saying, they see us walking around out here. least they could do is throw a spear at us, something to break up the monotony, but nothing's happening. It's mundane, and most of the Christian life is like that. People are like, why do I have to come to church? And we give them the answer. We'll tell them, you know, you come to church for a number of reasons. One, you come to church, you get edified. More importantly, you come to church to make sacrifice before God. So you sacrifice to God, you get edified, you get built up, you get recharged to go out into the community and take the word of God out with you. There's so many benefits, so many studies that have been done that say the further that ember gets away from the fire, the quicker it it dies out. And we need to be in church each week, but sometimes church can seem a little mundane. Particularly if we're choosing to make it mundane by doing nothing but sitting on our butts. And it gets a little mundane. And so we feel that way sometimes, but you know what? A lot of the Christian life is mundane. And we, we struggle with that sometimes. We don't like the mundane. We like the excitement. We like the lightning and the balls of fire and the ground opening up. Most of the Christian life is not like that. Most of the Christian life is we go do this, we do this, we do this. So we get up every morning and I pray and it's just... The only reason you think that getting up every morning and praying is such a labor is because you're not getting up in the morning and praying, by the way. But that's a whole other issue. But you get up and you start your day off with God. Okay, I did that yesterday. I did that the day before. I did that day before. Yeah. And the life of the Christian is mundane. You're going to do it again tomorrow because that's where we get our strength. Our strength comes from him. And then we, we look for those little highlights where it pays off, right? But we have our strength to be able to do this, our strength to be able to do that. But the reality is, whether we ever get to those times, it's the mundane is where God works. He kept it simple for us. We should kind of revel in that sometimes. But notice what he was doing. See, a lot of times, what we, what we see as mundane is actually God working. Notice what he was doing, though. For six days, if he'd just come out and said, you know, t- Joshua said, hey, tomorrow we're going to go and we're going to attack the city. Everybody had been like, we can't do this. We can't attack this city. How are we going to attack this city? Have you seen those walls? So uh, walking around was actually doing something. Walking around was, they knew something was coming. They knew that on the seventh day, there was something big coming. It's so every day when they walk around these walls, they're getting more familiar with the, the walls. But every day they walk around the city, they're getting more familiar with the city. Every day they walk around, they get more comfortable. And that anticipation begins to grow as to what God's about to do. Because they know. Because they have a blessing here. They have a blessing of knowing that on the seventh day, it's happening. On the seventh day, they're not going to blow the trumpets once. They're going to blow them seven times, and these walls are going to come down, and it's done. It's done. He works in the monotony. He was working in the hearts of the Israelites. I'd imagine he was also working in the hearts of the people of Jericho, though. So we learn something. We're going to look in, in Joshua chapter 2 in just a minute, but but we'll, we'll see something when we, when we go back there in a moment. We don't need to go there yet. That the people of Jericho knew the Israelites were coming. And they knew how powerful their God was. And these people who were legendary at how def- uh, defensible their city was, how great their armies were, how powerful they were, they were in fear from the day 
that the Israelites showed up. Now they're in fear. And now, every day, they have to look out and they see them just walking. And they're probably inside going, what are they doing? What are they doing? This isn't normal. This isn't right. And someone probably thought they were, they were crazy. And the worst person to fight with is a crazy person. You don't want to fight with people that don't have rules. So, so that maybe they're worried about that. And maybe they're, they're thinking, what are they up to? What is their God doing? Why, why are they doing this? And so for six days, it's working on the hearts of those. They know something's coming. And maybe, maybe they're even getting some inkling. I would imagine they had spies too, right? They, Israelites had spies. Imagine Jer- the, 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 these people, had, they probably had spies. And they probably get some spies saying, hey, they're doing this for six days. On the seventh day, they're talking like they're going to destroy us. Their God is going to destroy us on the seventh day. So every day it's like, oh, we're on day three. You see, you know, CNN is up and they've got the, the banner, day three of the siege, day seven of the end. You know, they've got all these things up there on their screens and their TVs where they're sitting there. And they're, they're waiting for all this stuff to happen. Every day it's like, we're on day five. What is it? Today's six. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do on day six? How do we get out of here? What do we do? And they're getting scared and they're panicking. And then day seven, the trumpets blow. And the walls begin to fall. God works through the mundane. Never, understand, never mistake mundane in our lives to equal that God's not doing something. That God's not leading to something. He's not working today. God also works in the lives of the faithful. I told you we were going to Joshua chapter 2. Turn over to Joshua chapter 2 right now. Because you probably, you notice when we're reading, he talked a lot about Rahab. Rahab's a prostitute. That's a lot of time to spend on a prostitute. Of all the people in this city, he's worried about a prostitute? And what's up with that? And we see in verse number 9 of chapter number 2. You see, just to back up a little bit before we read, though, what's happened is Joshua sent spies in. He sent spies in because he wants to know what's going on inside the city. He doesn't want any surprises. Remember, he's a great military man. And he, he wants to know what he's getting into. He wants to see what's happening before he gets there. So he sends them in. And in John, uh, Joshua chapter number 2, verse number 9 is where we'll start reading. It says, And she said unto the men, this is Rahab, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. That's impressive, isn't it? They've heard. Without TV, without Facebook, without anything else, they've heard of what God is doing through these people. And now we faint because of it. Now when the spies came in, she was the one that helped the spies. Not only did she help them, she hid them, she kept them safe. She kept them safe on the, on, on the, the roof of her house. And, and think about this. If you want to get information, where's a good place to get information? The brothel? Because everybody's got their guard down. Everybody's talking. Everybody's trying to impress people. And so they're talking and they're hearing this through the roof. And they're getting all this, this important, critical data. Verse number 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. And when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other, 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 other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. 
neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and earth beneath. What a great testimony. What a great testimony from, in essence, a heathen. Somebody from, not even an Israelite. And look at this testimony. This isn't just her opinion. This is what the people that, that this is why they're in fear. Now, therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all they, all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And the man answered her, Our life for yours. If ye utter not this, our business, and it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned, and afterward you may go your way. So she put a cord out the window, and her house is on the wall. So when the walls are coming down, that doesn't bode well for her house. But I would imagine, I'd I'd love to see it, because this is all speculation. I wonder if God spared that little piece of wall where her house was. Because Joshua tells her, he has a spice teller, that that to put that cord out, put that red cord out the window, so that that when they come up to take over, that they'll see that cord, and they'll know that that's her house, and they'll know... Don't destroy that. Take them alive and all their belongings and everyone in the household. So it kind of leads me to believe that that wall, that little piece of wall, God left standing. So they could see that cord coming down. They could see that ribbon. And I don't know if she put it out early. She probably put it out. She could have put it out six days early. So probably every day when they're walking around that building, they're like, that's Rahab's house. That's the one we don't touch. That's the one we don't destroy. She's on our side. And so they go around and they look and they see this, but God is working in her life. Because she's a Jew? No, because she's not. Because she's a good person? She's a prostitute. That's not, in in every society throughout history we've looked at, except for a couple where there were some Greek goddesses that were prostitutes, and, and throughout society, if you go to a town, you go to another country, and you say, you know, where's the worst part of town? That's the part where the prostitutes are, right? That's where you'll see them standing on the street corners. That's where, that's where they are. Because Why? Because in society, we have, we have given people different levels. And we put the, the, the prostitutes and the homeless and the drug users, we've put them all the way down there at the bottom. Rightfully, wrongfully, deservedly, doesn't matter at this point. It's just the way it is, right? We put them at the bottom. So she's not getting saved because she's worth it at least in our minds. She's not getting saved because she has a lot of money to give to, to Joshua and the, and the Jews. She's not getting saved because she, has, she doesn't have any, for, any more information. Once the town's destroyed, her information is useless. Her job as a spy or a helper of a spy is, is done. She doesn't know anything else. She's the only one left, her and her family. She has no benefit. Zero benefit for the people of Israel to keep her alive. But God is faithful. And I love that. Because I said society puts us all in order. God doesn't put us all in order. 
we're all sinners. And, and I would, whew, it brings me great joy to know that God doesn't look down on me because I'm a sinner and just say, well, you're not worth it. You're not worthy. You don't matter. You're as bad as Rahab. Now, I'm as good as Rahab. But in the eyes of the world, I might even be a little bit better. God used her. God is faithful. God works to the most unlikely people, too. Speaking of Rahab, look what she did. We see a, a little bit about Rahab. She's, she's one of the, the few people that we see repeated a couple times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. A prostitute. So here's Rahab. She, she, she not only helps the spies, she saved the spies' lives. She helped get the information that, that Joshua wanted. She did all these things. She was faithful to God when she didn't have to be. Notice that one part where it says and she's, she lives with the Jews even up to, until this day. Well, that was the day of the writing. It doesn't mean she's still alive today. Don't take it that literally. She's not 2,000 years old. She'd been in the Guinness Book of World Records, probably with a cigar in her mouth. But it meant when it was written, she was still with them. So, so when they left, you know, she's not a Jew. She could have gone anywhere. She could have gone to another town. She could have stayed there in the rubble and rebuilt. She could have gone anywhere she wanted. She stayed with the Jews. Not only that, but we see in her history that she's not a harlot anymore. She's not a harlot anymore. She gave up that lifestyle. Now, that may or may not be as impressive as what it sounds because most women that become prostitutes aren't prostitutes because they wake up one morning and say, I think this will be a good career choice. It's usually because either, it's usually because something forced them into that. Either an addiction or a man forced them into that. Sometimes a woman will force another woman, but usually it's a man. They'll force them into that. So she was probably not a, a harlot by choice. It was probably something that was forced upon her. So this was a liberation for her. Now her captors are gone. Now her addiction can be dealt with. Whatever it was, we don't know. God doesn't tell us. Because it, it, it doesn't matter. Because one is no more greater than any other in the eyes of God. He can take them all away. He can take away an oppressive husband or boyfriend. He can take away a drug addiction. He can take away an oppressive woman. He can take these things away because he's God and he can do it that fast. Whatever it was, he took it away and she chose to live with the children of Israel. She went a little further than that, though. She married a man named Salmon. We don't know a lot about Salmon except he had a son named Boaz with her. They got married they had a son named Boaz. Have you ever heard that name, Boaz, before? It's because Boaz is talked about a little bit in the book of Ruth. Actually, Boaz is talked a lot about in Ruth because it's kind of their little love story. And we see that picture of Boaz, who's, Boaz is now a powerful person. The, you know, went from a, you know, prostitute, now it's a powerful person. He's a powerful person, and we, and we won't get into all of it. I encourage you to read the book of Ruth. It, it's, if you like love stories, there you go. you got a love story there. If you like a lot of, of twists and turns, there you go. It, it's a great story. It's one of, my, one of my wife's favorite books of the Bible. You know, take a look at that and read that. You see a lot in there about faithfulness, a lot about doing the right thing, um, and going above and beyond, you know, that you can get by with just doing this, but let's take it the extra step. Let's do the right thing. But we won't, we won't get into all that today. But Boaz is detailed in the book of Ruth. But it doesn't stop with that. Boaz's great-grandson is a man named David. 
Usually we'll refer to him as King David. A, little, a couple weeks ago we talked about him fighting Goliath. That's Boaz's grandson. So I guess that would make it, make it Rahab's great-grandson or great-great-grandson. I may have left one out. Great-grandson, I think, of the prostitute that wasn't even a Jew. To go further, we see her detailed in Matthew chapter number 1. Her name is listed in Matthew chapter number 1 because she's the great-grandmother of David. And we have that genealogy that takes us through the house of David and takes us all the way to Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus. And it's important because we need to understand that Jesus' lineage comes from the house of David. But it also gets there by way of a prostitute named Rahab. You see, God works for the most unlikely people. Unfortunately, even today, even after examples like this, we still look at the drug dealer, the drug users and, and the drunks and the prostitutes and the thieves and, and the homeless, and we look at them like they're, they're worthless, like they have no value. And I, I'm sorry, I apologize, I do this sometimes. I find myself in that trap and I have to stop myself and say, God died for that person. It's usually when I have to do that, it's when somebody that's just bothering me and irritating me to no end. It's not normally a, a prostitute or a drug dealer or a drug dealer. Right? It's usually some idiot. And I'm like, I want to take him by the throat. And then I have to stop myself and remember, Jesus died for him. I probably shouldn't choke him out. And I restrain myself. Because people will irritate you. People, people that are different than you. You see somebody different and our tendency is to move away from them. To, to go to the other side of the street or go to the other side of the store or, or, or whatever it is. And, and, and sometimes there's some wisdom in that if, if it's based upon something real, something credible, or some type of history. But understand that no matter how bad we think somebody is, no matter how despicable we think they are, no matter how far down the, the food chain, if you will, in our society they are, God died for that person. That person was on the mind of Jesus when he said, forgive them, Father, they know what, not what they do. That person was on the mind of Jesus when he took his last breath. The least we can do is show him a little patience and a little love, right? I'm not asking you to go nail yourself to the cross for him. Jesus already did that. I'm just saying, have a little patience. What would have happened? Think about that, how it would have changed history if Joshua would have said, you gave your word to a prostitute? We'll be lucky even to find her. You know, they're, they're here one day and gone the next. And there's no telling where she'll be when we come in. Why would you give your word to a prostitute? Well, that's you guys. If you think you can do something, if you think you can take care of her, you go take her. I'm the king. I'm in charge here. I'm the boss. Don't bother me with a prostitute. Really? That's how most leaders today would probably act, right? They probably wouldn't say it publicly. Behind the scenes, they'd be like, depending on the leader, some of our presidents wouldn't even acknowledge them, acknowledge her. Some of them would probably be like, hey, bring her up to my office. Really, Wes? You're going to go there. Yeah. 
prostitute. God worked through her. So big. You don't, you don't see anybody else. Who else in Jericho? And she wasn't the only one that survived. Her whole family did. How many of them are, are mentioned? In another book of the Bible. In another testament of the Bible. Just this poor, lowly prostitute. God works the most unlikely people. You know, this is powerful, not just because of the way we interact with people, but it should be the way we shine that light upon ourselves. If God can use a prostitute in a pagan city that's an enemy of the children of Israel for his glory, he can use me. Right? I mean, again, we fall into that trap again. We're trying to say we're better than a prostitute. And I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that, you know, God is painting a picture here. It wasn't an accident why she was the one that was chosen. This wasn't accidental. God didn't, wait, you know, we wake up one morning and say, oh, a prostitute? Are you serious? <sighs> how are we going to work this into the story? That's not how it happened. He chose her for a reason. Partially because of her obedience, a great part because of her obedience. But also because he's trying to paint a picture for people in generations and generations, and we've lost that picture. That it's not based upon what we are or who we are or what we think we are that gives us any kind of worth. Because to be honest with you, none of us are worthy of God's love. And the sooner we realize that and understand that, and as troubling as that is, you are not worthy of God's love. That's hard to swallow. But the reality is, if it was up to us to be worthy, none of us would make it. Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross because I was worthy. He didn't die on the cross because you were worthy. He died on the cross because he loves you despite you not being worthy. That's the whole point of grace. If I have to be worthy, it's not grace. I'm working for it. We need to understand, and not, don't live there, by the way. Don't live in the fact that God, you're not worthy of God. You don't have to live in that point, because that's a down point. But you need to acknowledge it. You need to understand it. And then from there, move into God's love and God's grace and say, I'm not worthy, but praise God. We serve a gracious God. We serve a loving God. That in spite of all the stuff I've done, in spite of all the stuff I've thought, in spite of all the stuff I'm still going to do, he's still loves me. Live in that. Live in that. How much he loves you. Because we can get so down on ourselves. We can get so down on ourselves saying, well, God can't love me because I did this. Or God can't love me because I do that. Or or, I had this thought. Or I, I hurt this person. And we get through all these things about I can't do all these different things because of me. When our attention should be on him. Anytime our attention is on us, we're going to fail because we're not perfect. We may succeed for a little while. We may succeed for a season, but ultimately we're going to fall. If you're building your marriage, your relationship upon you or upon him or upon her, eventually it's going to fail because that person you're building it on, they're not perfect. And the longer you're with them, you're probably realizing they are far from perfect. But neither are you. 
We base our marriages. Our marriages are not a contract, no matter what the government tells you. Your marriage is not a contract. Your marriage is a covenant with God. We need to start using the love and the grace of God and letting that flow into our relationships. And let them go from there. God also works when you hit the right button. When we follow his plan. You see, this entire thing was God's plan. We look back and say, whoa, where did that come from? I'm sure the people of Jericho were like, whew, didn't see that coming. The Israelites are probably like, how did that even work? I bet even Joshua, back in his prayer time, is like, God, I don't know what you did there, but <laughs> get going. Because that wasn't us. You see, this was all God's plan. This was all his doing. There is nothing about this that Joshua can take credit for. The only thing Joshua can take credit for is his obedience. Because blowing horns doesn't knock down walls. Walking around in circles doesn't knock down walls. It just doesn't. And that was pretty much their plan. Or what they were doing. But when you realize it was God's plan, and we follow his plan, we let him do the work. He does the work. On Monday nights, we have GROW, and GROW literally stands for G-R-O-W. God rewards our work. It's when we come up alongside him in the fields, and we work the fields with him. The Bible tells us that we need to plant, and we need to water. We plant, we water. But there's nothing, even if you've grown a garden, you cannot make a seed grow. Nothing you can do. That seed grows because of the power of God's placed inside of it. Every single time. Scientists will try and explain it another way. But they can take all those same chemicals and try and mix them up and make a seed grow. But without that spark of life that God puts in them, it doesn't work. But God gives us the opportunity to plant them and water them and fertilize them. And so that his growth, we can, we can have a piece of it. We can look at it and say, look what we did. <laughs> and we didn't really do anything except pull some weeds out. That's usually our cure. We're going to grow, grow a garden by killing half the plants in it. You know, we kill all the weeds. And uh and, and, you know, it's God that gives the growth. God does everything. And we do that on Monday nights. We, we come out, we, we plant seeds, we water seeds, but whether anybody comes because of it, that's all up to God. He gives the growth. If it's up to me, if it's up to me to put, put butts in seats here, then I become a used car salesman. You know, I start being like, remember the old Family Mart commercials? I start, I'll have to do cartwheels down the aisles or something like that. We'll see you here. You know, and uh, start doing that kind of thing and, and, and the rows and all to get people to come on out. But that's not what it's about. it's not about. It's not about who I can get here. It's about me being obedient. And it's about you being obedient. God tells you, go and tell. That's it. I mean, you got the easy part. You just got to get up and go tell somebody. That's it. You don't have to trick them. You don't have to convince them. You don't have to tie them up and drag them in. You don't do anything. All you got to do is go and tell them. Because what you're doing is when you go and you tell them, you're planting and you're watering. When you plant and you water, let God do the rest. That's what he said. He's got a plan. He gives us his greatest plan, the simplest version of his plan in John 3.16. How many of you memorized John 3.16 in your life? If you haven't, you need to memorize John 3.16. Such a simple, basic verse. But it gives us everything that we need to know about God's plan. 
Starts out with who? God. For God what? He loved. He didn't look at the earth and say, you're worthy or you're not worthy. He looked down and saw he loved us. For God so loved who? The world. That's you. And you and you and you and you and you. That's all of us. God looked down at all of us unworthy people and said, what? I love you. I love you. For, yeah, exactly. For God. See, it's leading to something because it didn't just say God loved us. It says for God so loved us. In other words, it's leading. Why did God do this? It's because of love. For God so, so loved the world that what? He sent his only begotten son. So we needed a sacrifice. We had to have something to pay the price. And there was only one that could do it. It's God the Son. He sent his only begotten son. That word begotten is important there, by the way, because I'm a son of God. John chapter 1 tells me that. I, he gave me the power to become the son of, one of the sons of God, and I'm a son of God, but I'm not the, the begotten son of God. There's only one of those. That's Jesus Christ. He sent his only begotten son, whosoever. Who is that? That's everybody, right? We're back to that world again. That anybody in the world, whosoever believes in him, shall what? Not perish very much, right? That's not what it says, is it? Shall not perish. And that, if that, if you can stop right there, right? Wouldn't that be good? We just won't perish. All right. But it gets better than that, doesn't it? What does it say? We'll, we'll have what? Everlasting life. It's not enough just not to perish. We're going to have everlasting life. Everlasting life, by the way, we don't have time to get into all the, 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 the tenses and all this and all, but everlasting life doesn't just mean a life that goes on and on and on. It means a life, a life of prosperity. It means a life of fulfillment, a life of satisfaction. It's something that we really don't completely understand. The closest we come to this, some of you guys may know this, if you're a craftsman and you've built something, maybe a Maybe it's a bookcase, or maybe you've restored a car, or maybe, maybe it's a garden. Maybe you planted a garden, and you look and you, you put all your time, your energy into it, and your sweat, and your toil and all into it, and then you have that moment where you can step back and look at it, right, and say, look what I did. And you have that, that sense of that satisfaction, or, or when you're actually in the process of the work, and your wife has to come out of the garage and say, you know, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. It's time to put the tools down. But you feel like it's like first thing in the morning because you're energized and you want to keep going. You want to work. And that satisfaction that, that you have while you're doing it. It's not a labor. It's not a, a toil. It's satisfaction in your work. That's the picture of an everlasting life. Imagine feeling like that. We've all felt like that in small bites here and there. Imagine being like that all the time where everything is fulfilling Every work that you do is satisfying the way God intended it in the first place. That's what he's talking about. It's God's plan. God works when we follow his plan. People don't want to do that. They're like, oh, I love God, but, you know, I don't know about Jesus. Or I love Jesus, but I don't like his bride very much. And we, we want to do everything but. Or so we'll say, well, that sounds too easy. How about we add a little work to that? We add a, just to prove ourselves. You know, it's important that we, if we just add a little bit of work to it, then we can kind of kind of uh, filter out all the riffraff and, and get rid of the, the guests. So we just put a little bit of work in it, just a, a hoop here, a hoop there you got to jump through, maybe some catechism classes or some pillars you got to keep, something we got to do just to confirm. And we spoil his 
simple, loving plan. See, God works when we follow his plan. He's not obligated to work when we follow our plan. He works when we follow his plan. And just like walking around the city six times, it doesn't always make sense. It, always, it doesn't always look rational through the lights of our, our, through the eyes of our current society. But we can hold fast to the fact that what God tells us to do, if we will follow his plan, he will work in our lives every single day. Time.